Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and Pete Najarian. Coming up on Fast, Lyft zooming higher after reporting better than expected results. The company's conference call is underway. Our traders will break down how they are playing this big after-hours move. Plus, Snap getting ghosted. The stock hit with a big sell call today. But one of our traders says it's a total buy. He will make his case. And later, if you're craving a little baseball, we've got you covered. Tim is taking the mound to pitch his next best idea why he thinks this stock is a total home run. But we begin with the headline that moved the markets. Here it is, word for word. Quote, Trump says China may or may not keep the trade deal. End quote. That sank stocks into the close. Check out the move on the Nasdaq, for instance. It was a big for most of the day, then a sharp slide in the final moments of trade. Uh, ditto for the S&P 500. So, Guy Dami, is China back in play here? Is this the next big risk factor for the markets? Yes. And before I get into great detail, have to wish Tim Seymour, as he power pitches today, a very happy birthday. Just happy wanted to birthday, get that out there. Happy birthday, Tim Seymour. What was the question? Thank you, sir. China, oh, China, yeah, yeah, China. Very China. kind, very right. kind. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely think this is a big deal. And we started talking about it last week, not in terms of, you know, their, their trade deal or where they're going to keep their end of the bargain, but in terms of some of the rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration. Right or wrong, I'm not commenting, you know, whether it's correct or incorrect. What I'm commenting is the rhetoric seems to be getting louder. And in no way, shape or form is that market bullish, especially given the fact that the markets rallied back some what, 32 percent now to levels that we find ourselves at. So I think people are not paying enough attention to it. I think today they finally started. There were a lot of comments that came out of the White House attributed to the president. Um, He also said that he will be able to report on whether China is fulfilling its obligations under phase one of the trade deal in about a, a week or two. And at the same time, he says he doesn't believe the death toll numbers coming out of China. Tim Seymour, a lot of, there are a lot of cross currents here, but in terms of tensions with China, they seem to be ramping. We had this conversation last night, and it was particularly uh, appropriate even for today, which is that uh, thinking about trade policy in a post-COVID or in a COVID-19 environment, um, if you think anything has changed with the administration in terms of how they're approaching China on trade, um, nothing's changed. And, and I think that's something that the market is probably taken a little off guard on. And maybe they shouldn't be. I mean, the, the, the agenda between ultimately about controlling and pushing back on the digital you know, creep, how should we say, um, that, that we think is happening in China. Uh, but, but the bottom line here is that the market, which is very much sentiment based right now, and it's much how fiscal policy and monetary policy have supported markets here, has been as much about sentiment. This is not something that the market uh, was really factoring in on a day when we got a horrendous ADP number. And on Friday, we're going to re- be reminded that this economy is not going to recover overnight. So if we had structural and systemic dynamics with trade before all this even started and we're hearing about it again, uh, the market, which has been struggling at 28, 28, 50 to 29, is certainly not going to take off from here. We looked pretty OK on the back of those stupendously terrible ADP numbers. I mean, we had sort of this risk on looking market, Steve Grasso, uh, up until about 3.30. We had um, information technology on the S&P 500 as a sector, positive. It managed to end positive for the year. We had the Nasdaq, you know, gave up about a percent of its gains on the back of all this. Um, we had actual selling in the TLT, the bond market, final. I mean, so it looked like there was some sort of relationship between stocks and bonds that made sense, finally. Yeah, I think that the market just had one thing to hold on to going into the close. 
And that was the headlines out of uh, with Trump on the trade war or potentially getting back on the forefront. I think this market, 99% of this market, is going to trade off of vaccine, off of therapies. I wouldn't make too much over the last half hour to play in the marketplace. I think what you really have to concentrate on, growth, technology companies. I get it, though. All these names that have taken us to the finish line or, to, or halfway up from the lows are all the technology plays. So what it comes with technology? Your dependence on China. Qualcomm derives 63% of their revenues from, from China. Micron, about 50 to 60% of their revenues from China. So I get the concern. Let's worry about the economy restarting right now. And I think tomorrow, if we get a barrage of positive headlines and we're going in the right direction with some states restarting their economy, some states getting a handle on it, and the death rates and the fatality rates that are sort of uh, stabilizing, I think we're not going to think about China. It didn't take that much out of the market today. Mm -hmm. I don't foresee it being a huge play in the marketplace. You don't really see that much happening after hours on my screen, so I wouldn't worry about it. Hey, what'd you make of the action? You know, Mel, I think the, uh, the, the honest-to-God truth is when you, when you look at the markets over the last two or three trading sessions, it's come down to the final either two hours, half hour, 45 minutes, whatever it might be, off of one specific news story that people just seem to grasp onto. So I think what we saw today, and I, I, I wish the president hadn't have gone where he went today, because I think we are dealing with, to Steve's point, quite honestly, we're dealing with enough things right now as it is. And I don't know necessarily that this would be the timing where I'd want to bring up the trade war and, and, and whether or not the Chinese are going to adhere to it or not. And I think the reality is there are so many better places for us to be focused on right now. But that being said, he did bring it up. And when you look at the market reaction, it really wasn't. I realize we finished down 200 points, but the Dow was struggling all day and we pulled back in the Nasdaq. But I still look at it and say, you know what, that kind of a reaction, it wasn't an over. We didn't get that kind of move where we're down suddenly 500 points and everybody's freaked out. We did get a push to the downside. We did pull back, but not any different than the last couple of days. So from that perspective, it really didn't have a, as big of a negative effect as we might really first th would have thought given what was really said by the president. I think that's a fair point. I mean, if, the, if this comment was meant as some sort of a trial balloon uh, to the notion that the U.S. may, in fact, cancel uh, something that had been negotiated in good faith with China, we took a pretty well guy. At the same time, if we back up and remember, I mean, our muscle memory when it comes to China trade, during the worst of it, you think of December 2018, that was not a fun time. Yeah, you, everybody's made extraordinarily valid points. The market did take it well. I'm not suggesting it didn't. What I'm saying is I think we're, we're underestimating uh, how this rhetoric can go. And it's, you know, the trade portion of this is just one aspect that now President Trump has brought forth. But this started last week when the administration started floating out. Um, the Chinese are going to somehow pay for the coronavirus and they're going to be uh, reparations and those types of words being used uh, that, to me, is, is a little bit frightening. Now, I, you know, my sense is the Chinese aren't going to take that well to it. And my further sense is President Trump's probably not going to back off on this rhetoric. And I don't see how. Listen, I'm not suggesting it's devastating for the market, but it's mm -hmm. certainly not bullish for the market, in my opinion.
I mean, when you add the other ingredients, the potpourri is, is not pleasant, Tim. No, it's not. And, and so look at risk factors today that we're measuring, I think, this potpourri. Um, I know our viewers don't really probably always focus on things like dollar yen, but that's a measure of risk. And we're, we're essentially getting near four-year lows again on dollar yen, uh, sorry, euro yen, um, which, which tells you uh, the European Union's currency is, is depreciating. There's certainly been a lot of talk about how impacted that economy has been. Uh, the dollar has been strengthening. Uh, Treasury yields are, are a little bit wider today. I, I, you know, if anything, that's probably uh, should have been a sign for equity markets that was bullish. Uh, but for the most part, we are seeing different parts of the market. And, and it, it's, not, it's not terribly bullish that the, the market's been focused only on these mega cap tech companies and that actually the, the Nasdaq's outperformed the S&P by almost 1,500 basis points this year. That to me is not bullish. The breadth that we had seen at parts of this market before COVID-19 that was encouraging coming out of the trade war with the Fed as your friend mm-hmm. are not things we're really seeing here. So um, risk factors responding to that potpourri. As we mentioned, the tech sector turning positive for the year, but the chart master says the big tech rally is about to fizzle out. So let's get to Cornerstone Macro's Carter Worth with more on this. What are you seeing, Carter? Well, what we know is that just at the peak on Feb 19th, the problem was that the market was stretched. A few names doing all of the lifting as big names like Ford, Exxon, DuPont making five-year lows. Well, here we are after the crash and the ricochet, and the structure is just as bad. Uh, Tim was just talking about the breath. I have four slides. Let's just look at them quickly. The first is just to put the, put the stats on. We know there's 71 stocks in the S&P 500 technology sector. We know it's $6.3 trillion, and you can see there, 26% weight. In fact, if you put Amazon and Google back, it's 30. And there is a history where you get as high as 30. Any sector typically is at or near a peak. Take a look at the second slide. Now, what we do know, of course, is it's not always. It's where you start the meter, where your storyline starts. What we know is that from the peak, it was March 24th, it was a Friday, 2000, the dot-com peak, tech is still behind the S&P. So just on a price percentage change, the S&P is up 88% versus tech, only up 66 And on a total return, of course, it's much worse. Look at the second column, S&P up 178 versus the tech sector, only uh, 98 Anyway, let's look at the charts right now. So the first chart is a two panel, and it is the tech sector. And we see the sell-off, of course, and you see the ricochet. The important thing is the relative performance. It was outperforming on the way down, and it's outperforming on the way up. It's making new relative highs to the S&P. That's part of the problem. We're so dependent on just these handful of names as banks and industrials and other things get worse. And so the final chart is the XLK itself, the ETF. And... I would just, you know, for fun, uh, ask you individually, each of you, do you think this goes back and makes a high in 2020? It would take a 10.5% gain from here to recoup all of its losses and make an all-time high. That's a question, Carter? Uh, If if you're ready for an answer, I'm ready. I'm ready. What is it? Oh, I was going to ask, ask you first, and then I'll go. I'll give you mine first. The answer is no. I, I do not think it will go back to those highs this year. And um, that's uh, based on, but I'd love to hear what the desk thinks. Absolutely. I'm, I'm agnostic. I, I don't harbor an opinion on, on where stocks go. But our traders do, of course. So I'll go to Grasso on this. 
What do you say? So, so uh, in the Excel case specifically, Microsoft and Apple are 42%. They make up 42% of the XLK. Those are two names that have performed pretty darn well during the whole Corona stint. And I think on the services side and on the Microsoft cloud side, I think that they have the ability to perform even better going forward. So I'm going to push up against Carter. I agree with him on his XLF analysis, but I think the XLK can go higher from here. So I'll take the over. All right. And Pete, your thoughts? Nope. Pete? (laughs) I take the over as well. I, I, I look at it, Mel, and I see... Um, some really productive names that, that, that absolutely can continue to produce. And, and because of that, I do think the XLK can actually establish some new highs. And I think it's going to broaden out a little bit more. I, you know, the one thing I sit here listening so far to a lot of the commentary, um, that for, especially coming from Carter just now, I see so much more of a broad move, Mel, than everybody else seems to see. I understand there's five or six stocks that are powering things, but Home Depot in the last month is up 25%. Chevron's made a $15 move off of lows. These aren't the absolute lows. I'm just talking about in the last month. We're seeing participation targets up more than 25%. I see a lot of these various chip stocks. You go through NXPI and Micron and AMD, and you go down the list of all the chip stocks we know, Cuervo, and, and, and suddenly you start to see a lot of different names that are up 20, 25, 30%. So there's been participation, but clearly it's the mega caps that are moving everything. But that doesn't mean there aren't other areas of the marketplace that are actually starting to pick up a little bit. So I, I understand the, the arguments about what we're talking about here, but I think the reality is this is broader than just the, fir- the first major five stocks that are moving this market. All right. Carter, you got your answer. Thank you. <laughs> Carter Worth, Cornerstone Macro. Hi. Coming up, Lyft and Overdrive in the after hours. The company just uh, surprised the street with results, but the company said about riders has got the stock surging in the after hours. And later, has Snap hit its peak? One big bank thinks so, but someone on our digital desk disagrees that trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert for you on Lyft. That stock is rocketing higher in the after hours session, up about 15.5%. Deidre Bosa joins us now with more. Deidre. Melissa, bittersweet quarter for Lyft. Its results exceeded expectation and showed that the ride-sharing firm was actually on track for a pretty good quarter. But then, of course, the global pandemic hit and its business fell off a cliff. That was only seen, though, in the final weeks of the first quarter. So key is what the company is, has been seeing in April. And CEO Logan Green addressing that off the top of the call. For the month of April, ride-share rides were down 75% year-over-year. Ride levels appear to have stabilized, seeming to have reached a bottom in the second week of April. We have since seen three consecutive weeks of week-on-week growth, but clearly this is from a low absolute ride base, and rides last week were still down more than 70% year-on-year. So rides may have stabilized at a very low level, but the question is, will they ever recover enough? 
in a world of social distancing. I want to highlight a few comments as well from CFO Brian Roberts a few moments ago. He said that Lyft is reducing its capital expenditures by more than 60 percent this year. He also said that if rides remain at those April levels that Green just outlined, they can keep adjusted EBITDA losses to under $360 million, excluding restructuring costs. That is, of course, a big if. And lastly, Melissa, you know, Uber is reporting tomorrow, and I would just caution against extrapolating these results for Uber, even though its shares are surging on the back of its rivals' results. Remember that Uber operates in many, many more markets around the world, many of which were hit by the pandemic earlier. It has a significant food delivery business, which is growing quickly, but also losing more money than ride-sharing. Back to you. All right, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa uh, with uh, more on Lyft. Tim Seymour, how do you think about this sort of trade? Well, you know, the great irony, of course, is is that Uber is seemingly looking more interesting because of the diversity of their model. I mean, Lyft, look, has been all over the map, right? It fell 75 percent. It rallied 125 percent. It was down 25 into this print. Um, I think the most important thing is because we know that the April numbers are going to be awful, um, but that you know, this is a company and it's, it's if there's have and have nots, it's probably a have not in terms of what happens post COVID. But but they were, you know, they were essentially growing 30 percent going into those numbers uh, and, and they stayed cash flow neutral on the quarter. So in terms of the burn, people expected a bigger burn number. And the fact that they came in more or less in line with three billion in cash, that's the kind of thing that it makes this stock a little bit more insulated in the next three to six months as people know it's going to be difficult. But I don't think you have to jump into this again. Hearing, you know, we we. Down 75 percent in terms of ride share. Stabilizing, that's great. Cash burns, you know, under control. But it was a company that I think had already had a huge snapback going into this. And we were questioning what multiple to put on it. So I'm not chasing this number. Let's get more reaction to uh, Lyft's quarter. Loop Ventures' Gene Munster has been listening in on the company's call. Um, Gene, what did you make of the quarter so far? Uh, also impressed with Tim's comments that uh, growth, they really exited at 10 percent growth in revenue down 75 percent is what Deidre talked about, but also they pointed out that there's been in eight cities 30 percent growth uh, week on week. So really some impressive bounce back. This management team is a bunch of assassins, and I, uh, that's the part that's really jumped out on the earnings call, is they have an opportunity. They have a platform here that is in dire need of cash. Business is down dramatically. They could start chasing shiny things like uh, Uber does, other uh, types of use case, for example, uh, food delivery. Instead, the company is taking this very long-term approach and is uh, sticking with ride sharing in the U.S. predominantly, which is absolutely the right thing for them to do. Don't try to replicate what Uber is doing. So they said on the earnings call that they will not be getting into food delivery. The other piece is how they are capitalizing on this opportunity in very strong language, but the uh, essence is that they're cutting costs by about $500 million per year, $200 million in CapEx and $300 million in OpEx. And so what that means is that uh, about 35% of their 5,000 or so employees have either been let go or had a pay cut, and they've cut, as I mentioned, CapEx dramatically. That, to me, is assassin-like approach to this, is to try to use this as an opportunity to really streamline their business. Um, I have been a long believer in uh, the future of ride sharing as a service and the importance of that as we move forward. An undeniable truth, I have been very uh, concerned going into tonight's print about the company's ability to weather this storm. This could go on for a year plus. But uh, coming in, uh, halfway through the earnings call here, Melissa, I've been really impressed. And when you put it all together, 
This is now uh, about an eight or nine billion dollar market cap. It feels like for someone who actually invests, not speculates, but can invest over the long term, this seems like a good one to own. At the same time, Gina, you mentioned all the the different cuts that they are willing to make. If this does persist or if rideshare doesn't snap back, because let's say people would rather actually have cars uh, in in the post-pandemic world because they feel safer being in their own environment as opposed to jumping into a black Honda Civic. Um, you know, does how long can this company persist in that sort of world? So they have 2.7 billion in cash today. They were net cash neutral. They're going to burn a little bit in the the June quarter. Probably call it a couple hundred million dollars. But to answer your questions, they can uh, sustain a year and a half, two years of of virtually uh, of almost no uh, revenue. Uh, two thirds of their costs are variable. Uh, that is an an incredibly asset light type of a business, and so they can sustain and kind of wait this out. Uh, undoubtedly, people are going to exit this and want to feel more safe in a car. People who have maybe leaned a little bit more on ride sharing may lean less on that. But I think if you look at this arc over a five year period, mm-hmm. we're still moving into a world where uh, people don't want to have ownership. I, I think that that will still be a truth on the other side of this. So it's a headwind. It all is in this broader category. Investors need just to separate themselves with any of the metrics, whether it's Lyft or Uber, and just look at the cash position and their brand within the marketplace. Gene, thank you. Always good to hear from you. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. That is stunning that they could operate basically not taking anything in for the next year, two years. Uh, Steve Grasso, as the uh, number one germaphobe on this panel, I go to you. Um, in terms of how you think about the post-pandemic world and the future of rideshare? So I think it's going to be in stages. No one's getting back on mass transit in the first stage of when the economy starts. So I think people might try out or get back to the Uber or the Lyfts, and then they might migrate and say, I don't want to be in the back of of a car like you just said, and maybe I'll buy a car. But as far as Lyft, Lyft has been the laggard. So I would expect this one to bounce further than Uber. But Uber has been the name, the best in breed name. I wouldn't chase this. Tim said it before. I wouldn't chase Lyft at these levels. It's got to hold the 50-day, so roughly around 29 and a nickel. But the recent high has been 35 bucks. So you still have to trade up 15% to avoid just a lower high. So I would wait here. You're sort of in no man's territory here. If you want to buy it nibble, Make sure it holds 29. Mm-hmm. If you want to wait, wait until it trades above 35 and holds that level to be a buyer of Lyft longer term. All right. We've got a lot more earnings on deck. Up next, Win is losing steam. Peloton pedals higher and Square slumps. We'll break down all the after-hours action. But first, Tim is winding up for a fast pitch. There you see him. No ball? What's, what's going on here? Um, companies may have pulled guidance, but he will outline why he still thinks it could be a home run. He's got one name and he'll pitch it. Stay with us. Welcome back to Fast Money. The coronavirus pandemic creating a cloudy future for almost every business in America. According to Wells Fargo, 171 publicly traded companies have pulled guidance this earnings season. That's roughly 35 percent of the S&P 500. But Tim says one of these names could be a home run investment. He's stepping up to the plate with a fast pick. Tim, take it away. Yes, Mel. Uh, And I miss baseball, but uh, I'm going to fast pitch Abbott Labs. And you're talking about companies that have pulled guidance. And and this is one of those companies. So I'm going to first talk about what I might be looking for 
in a company that pulls guidance. Uh, and then let's talk about why specifically at Abbott Labs. But, but in the case of Abbott Labs, you know, here's a company that has total diversity, uh, diversity in their, in, their, in their business units. They've got four major uh, economic kind of footprints, but then they've got global diversity. And then they've got diversity in their customer base, which is the fact that they've got uh, hospitals and a consumer business. Uh, the balance sheet is, is fantastic. And as you might imagine with, with a pharma company, there's a lot of cash in the balance sheet. There's a decent free cash flow yield. And this is, you know, roughly, debt to equity of around 0.4, 0.5 times. So at a time when you're worried about balance sheet, this is, again, another one of these companies. And it's a company who's got an earnings history of consistency. So when they pull that guidance uh, with that business model, uh, I have a lot of confidence that this is a company, as an investor, you should be taking a medium-term outlook on a lot of these companies today. So again, why Abbott? Uh, well, they, they pulled guidance, but they gave uh, pretty decent uh, commentary on what's going on with their diagnostics business and, and their devices business, which was really probably the one that's that's most hit. Um, they're saying, hey, look, we could actually be somewhat V-shaped on this. But if you think about their diagnostics business, obviously, we've heard a lot about COVID uh, and the connection and what Abbott's doing on testing. Uh, but some of their core other established businesses, including Established Pharma uh, is a business that is very consistent over the long haul. The nutrition business was probably something that was, uh, if anything, there was some pantry stocking. There was a little bit of a front loading effect. So um, that counterbalances some of the things that they might have seen in, in some of the devices business, which was certainly hit. So, look, long term, the valuation on Abbott, it trades, you know, at a slight premium to its peer group for a reason. And at a time like this, again, low mid-teens EPS with this balance sheet and with this diversity, this is the stock you want to own right now. You know, Guy, I don't know, you're very astute watcher of this program, uh, especially when you're on the program. Um, but I don't know if you noticed that there was a trade school within a fast pitch. This is like the turducken of fast money segments, with one segment inside another segment. So I think, I mean, uh -huh. do you have a question on either part of like Tim's it. pitch? I do. I, I do have a question. I just I want to quickly say that what you call that thing, a, a, tro, a true duck in a true duck. And that's like when a duck is inside a turkey. So this trade school was inside the fast pitch, which became one segment. Yeah, that's right. Well, again, you know. without getting in, <laughs> the more, you know, the more, you know, without getting into great deal about my constitution, that the turducken would probably not suit me particularly well. But I do have a question for Tim. And I'm a big fan of your work, Tim. My, my pushback, just to play devil's advocate, you're talking you, about a stock that's gone from 60 to 100 effectively in a straight line. Does that concern you? Look, this is a company that has proven it trades at a, at a premium to its peer group, but uh, they pulled guidance. That, to me, is not something that bothered me. And in fact, again, I look at the core businesses, I look at diagnostics, and I look at nutrition. These are businesses that should be trading at a premium relative to the peer group. No, I'm not, I'm not concerned by that. All right. No more questions. It is time to vote. So we ask you, are you buying Tim's pitch on Abbott Labs? Normally we have whiteboards that we hold up. So we're going to sort of play it by ear here. <laughs> um, Guy, what do you say? So look at this. Look at the creativity, by the way. I just want to show you that. Do you see that, Melms? Can you see Very it? Very sweet. The ABT, oh, right. Nice. So yes. Yes. All see, right. See so what you're I buying. All right. So, Pete, yes. Pete Najarian. I'm a buyer as well, so I'm holding it up. Uh, and what I like so much about it, Mel, is uh, they are such a diverse company with so many acquisitions that have been the right timing of the acquisitions, not overpaying. The only concern I have, to Guy's point, is 
This stock has made an incredible run back up to the upside. It's incredible that it's higher than it is than it was in January. So that part makes me a little apprehensive. I'd probably be patient, but I like the name. Steve Grasso. I want to echo that, what, what, what Pete just said. So Pete and Guy just brought up a, a, a very strong thing. So I, I say a buy, but it's got to hold the $89 level. So you don't have to really rush in because not only did it jump 62% off the lows, it came back in about 9%, and it's made a series of lower highs. So just be careful on this one. Let it hold the $89 level. Shoot against that, but bye. All right, clean sweep for the birthday boy. The traders have voted. It is your turn out there. So are you buying or selling Tim's fast pitch on Abbott Labs? You can vote in our poll at CNBC Fast Money. Coming up, there's a lot more earnings movers to get to. We'll dive into the numbers after the break, and we'll get you ready for Uber's big report. Why one options trader is betting on more pain ahead. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got more earnings movers for you. PayPal, Square, Wynn Resorts, Peloton, all just reported. We've got full team coverage wrapping up all the after hours action. Let's kick it off with Kate Rooney on the payment space. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Square and PayPal feeling the effects of COVID-19 shutdowns, especially in March. PayPal, which had hit a 52-week high going into Q1 earnings, pulling its full year guidance, a miss on EPS as well, which included a loss for credit reserves. Revenue also a miss, as well as a total payments volume miss. But Q2 guidance paints a brighter picture. That was better than Wall Street expected. I spoke to, to CEO Dan Schulman, who told me April was the best month since that company went public. The digital transformation that should have taken three to five years, he says, is happening now in weeks thanks to COVID. Square, meanwhile, pulling Q2 and full-year guidance, reporting an unexpected loss of two cents Analysts had expected a gain of 13 cents for the quarter. Adjusted EBITDA down 85% year over year. Uh, that was thanks to increases in reserves for loan losses. Gross payments volume a miss as well, but cash app growth was a bright spot for Square. The uh, analyst call just kicking off and CEO Jack Dorsey giving some new stats on the PPP program from Square saying they facilitated nearly a billion dollars in loan applications from 54,000 sellers. 45,000 sellers have been approved. The average loan size, $12,000. Guys, back to you. Any commentary, Kate, yet on their loan portfolio and how much worse it gets as this pandemic drags on? Yeah, that was a big part of the losses, that they were beefing Mm -hmm. up their credit reserves, and it seems like preparing for the worst. We haven't heard yet how bad those were, and even though they were included in this uh, emergency lending program, it seems like you see from other fintech companies, small business lending outside of emergency loans has really taken a hit. So we'll see if there is some sort of rebound and how it looks for the rest of the year, but Square especially is really tied to brick and mortar. So uh, looking for more yep. comments on that. All right, Kate, thank you, Kate Rooney. On payments, Pete Nigerian, I'm gonna, I mean, obviously, would you rather? <laughs> okay, it's easy for me, Mel. <laughs> I'm gonna rather uh, PayPal, and I love that name. It was a pitch show, and it was, 
It's a, it's a great name. I think they've done an unbelievable job in terms of acquisitions over the years, Mel. When you can include Venmo and, and Brain and all these other different uh, acquisitions that they've made to just sort of fill up every single avenue they can, the verticals that they've got in the payment space, it's just amazing to me. So Honey's another one that I throw out there. That's for the coupon side of things. So there's all kinds of different ways they can make money. I, I'm impressed with what they put up for the quarter. And let's not forget, this is a stock that made an incredible run into today and still kind of hanging around up there. So I was actually hoping for a little bit of a sell-off to get back in because I got out, but I'm impressed by those numbers, so I definitely would rather PayPal. All right, let's get to Wynn Resorts. Contessa Brewer's got the numbers. Hey, Contessa. Hi there, Melissa. Tough hit to win. Misses on the top and the bottom line. But look, Macau had a two-week gaming shutdown in February, and it just hasn't recovered, in part because visa restrictions are still in place. Las Vegas closed down mid-March, wins burning almost $8 million a day, paying all 30,000 of its workers. And today it extended those paydays until May 31st. When we do reopen in whatever state that is, in Las Vegas and in Massachusetts, that I want our team members to have smiles on their face. It'll be underneath a mask, but it'll still radiate through because we're in the business of making people happy. I think we need to update our picture of Matt Maddox there. It looks like he's about 12. But at any rate, he's put out a plan that is so detailed and comprehensive on reopening that he says other companies in other industries are actually calling to use it, too. In Macau, I just talked to him. He says clearly there's pent up demand, especially in VIP and premium segments which, you know, is good because there's fewer of those players and it's easier to institute social distancing. Maddox says seeing schools back in session, seeing businesses in Beijing, just gives him hope for a breakthrough very soon in Macau, Melissa. All right, Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer with Wynn. Uh, Steve Grasso, do you like Wynn here? Uh, I, I do like when wind has actually been the outperformer. It's 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 not down as much as the other ones were. But I but for me, the best in breed is still Las Vegas Sands because you get that Singapore uh, angle to it. So you might not think it's it's a benefit or a tailwind now, but it will be once we really come out of this. And when you look at the revenue that Las Vegas Sands generates, it eclipses that of the revenue that wind does. So longer term. I think you're better off being an LVS than Win, but I do like both names. Tim? I think Win is, is an interesting call just because they've given you a pretty detailed update on their liquidity. So, uh, they, you know, they talked about about $3 billion in liquidity. Uh, they essentially pre-announced these numbers. So it was all about saying they've got 1.4 years of OPEX, uh, cash, CapEx, and interest expense uh, to run with. And I, I think, you know, that's, that's reasonable in an environment where I think this has been the higher beta play. So Steve talks about LVS being more conservative. But um, I like Win on the medium term. It's had a big run. This is, there's been a bit of a pullback. And I think you the base kind of in the 80s. All right, let's move on to Peloton now uh, to Diana Olick with that story. Diana. Yeah, Melissa, Peloton came in with higher than expected Q3 revenue and strong Q4 guidance to more than double revenue year over year. 
No surprise, COVID-19 has everyone working out at home, and that is benefiting the streaming fitness company, which sells high-end connected bikes and treadmills, although treadmill sales are suspended now because they require in-home delivery. Now, connected subscribers on the bike and tread grew 94% annually in digital subscribers on the app, which adds yoga, meditation, and strength training, up 64% annually. Total subscribers, 2.6 million. They also just added dance and family fitness. And CEO John Foley just said on the analyst call, we believe we are accelerating our market share gains and increasing our lead as the largest and most scaled fitness platform in the world. He added that stay-at-home orders are permanently changing fitness behavior. Now, subscription reactivations were very strong, especially in January and during the last few weeks of March. Demand has grown so much for the bike in Q4 already that they're seeing longer delivery times getting it to customers. Peloton says it continues to pay full salary and benefits to all employees and are making all rent payments across retail and studio locations. All those retail locations, of course, closed. They had that 35,000-square-foot New York studio set to open a month and a half ago. It opened briefly just with the trainers, but they ended up having to close it. And the trainers, of course, are now doing the live fitness programs from their own homes, which probably took a lot to get that going on. Melissa? Yeah, I noticed that. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. Um, Guy Dami, I know you're a fan of the product, but in terms of the stock, is there a certain element of pull forward when it comes to some of these bike sales? In other words, if they're selling all these bikes now, who else are they going to sell those bikes to in, down the road? Yeah, it's yeah, it's not just the bike. So as you know, it's a subscription product. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are five of us in this house. There are three dogs also. They don't participate in Peloton. But I got to tell you something. There's a lot. You have to sign up on like a a list in my house to get on the Peloton during the day. That coupled with the fact that a lot of these companies are now having groups. My wife, for example, has a Merck scientist group that they're riding in. I know for a fact that you're riding, Mel, although I'm not going to give away your rider name. And I'm telling you something. The shorts are going to continue to get squeezed. And Peloton, the stock, is going to continue to go higher, in my opinion. Just my opinion. I try. But Dennis my, Morton, my, by the way, my he's my well. guy. Oh, really? Love Dennis Morton. I'm an Allie Love, Emma uh, Lovewell kind of person. Um, Pete Nigerian, your fitness geek, I want to say. <laughs> I am. I am. I definitely am, Mel. But I, I can tell you this. Um, it's, it's not a company that I was in big favor of until now. And now I think the stickiness of the situation is going to be incredible for Peloton. And a lot of people that I talked to, even today, going into the earnings, I was asking people questions. Did you do anything? Have you bought any of this kind of thing? And people, yes, they added a million people to the digital side of things. So that, that's pretty impressive to Guy's point outside of just the bike itself. And it's a very expensive bike. We all know that. So there is a lot to this story. And I think it's going to change for the better for Peloton. But unfortunately, this is going to have an impact on a lot of health clubs out there, Mel, because quite honestly, this is amazing. And the margins were great. Everything across the board was a home run today for Peloton. And this is the perfect storm to really kick that off for them. All right, coming up, Snap, Crackle, Drop. One Wall Street firm downgrading Snap today. So is this massive rally disappearing right before your eyes? We'll debate that next. And don't miss our special coverage of the markets in turmoil. That's coming up tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. We will be right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Snap falling after analysts at Citi slapped a sell rating on the stock, saying revenues for this year and next are likely to come up short. Citi did raise its price target, though, from 10 to 14 bucks, uh, but that still implies a 21 percent drop from where the shares are right now. The stock 
is up a whopping 120 percent from the March low. Um, Steve, you've been bullish on this call. Are you starting to be concerned about valuation of city is? Uh, no, I'm not concerned yet, but they, it, they're warranted to have that concern and they're warranted to say that there's so much positive news that's factored into the into the price of the stock currently. Snapchat and Twitter trade basically in the same type of bucket. So uh, sometimes what hurts one helps the other. And Snapchat has outperformed Twitter. But our good friend Rich Greenfield uh, at, over at Lightshed Partners, he's been pretty positive on it for an angle that most aren't talking about. Just think about t- television. There'll be no fall television season. So Snapchat is actually coming up with its own original content. Where are people going to watch this? The user engagement, the daily active users are up. They're up 20% year over year. So I think when you look at the advertising budgets, people are looking to scale back on their big time advertising plans and to kind of kick it into these social plans. So maybe it's run a bit too far, but it's really held on to its price quite effectively. And I think it's going to be the recipient of a heck of a lot of advertising dollars mm-hmm. when there aren't a lot of other venues where they wouldn't, would otherwise go to, if that makes sense. Okay, so how sh- Tim, how should I think about advertising budgets? If they're getting cut across the board, and if Facebook and Google are the places you have to be, um, but the budgets are going down overall, I mean, is Snap going to be hit too? I mean, and, and content is not cheap, even if they are going to have original content, and that may be I a think- draw for advertisers. Yeah, I, I think they will. But they also gave some guidance into kind of the promotion uh, side of the advertising that's working for them. And, and so um, I, I, I kind of feel as if advertisers, though, are, you know, while Facebook and Google have such a significant uh, scale advantage, I, I do think that advertisers are, are looking to diversify uh, into different buckets. And I think look, Snap's growth is certainly proven to be um, both a surprise and, and more resilient than expected. And, and the numbers they just announced two weeks ago, whenever that was, um, they were showing pretty decent uh, numbers into, into 2Q. So um, as much as I, I do think it's going to be a terribly difficult time for ad headwinds, um, they articulated that the promotion side of that's working for them. All right, coming up, options traders giving uh, the Uber trade a bad rating. Should you drive away from the stock? Much more on that next. We've got an earnings alert on Twilio. Let's get to Dom Chu. Dom. All right. So Twilio shares right now, Melissa, up about 25 percent in the after hour session, roughly one and a half million shares of after hours volume. This after the cloud computing services and software company posted financial results, both on the profit and revenue side that both beat analyst expectations. Revenue surged by 56 percent over the same period last year, driven by more demand for those services. So, again, watching those shares up a massive 25 percent after hours. Melissa, back over to you guys. All right, Dom. Thank you, Dom Chu. Smells like a short covering rally to me, Pete. I don't know, 14% of shares outstanding are short in Twilio. Uh, you were banking on a, on a big pop, though, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, because Monday, Mel, we had some great unusual activity in there where we had some buyers of the May 125 call. Stock was trading about 112 at the time. They paid about $2 for these calls, which sounds like an extreme amount, except for the fact this is Twilio. These are the kind of moves that this stock does make. So 
Cloud communications is a very hot industry. We already know that. Plus, you get the short squeeze that you mentioned, and that's when you get a stock that goes all the way up to 152. I can barely sit in my seat right now. I'm pretty excited about this one. Really, really fun to see this. All right. Let's take another <laughs> look here at Lyft shares. Up double digits after earnings. The company reported user growth despite the coronavirus. Options markets are betting on a different move for Uber, which reports tomorrow. The company today announcing it would cut about 14% of its workforce and that CEO Dara Khosrowshahi would forego his $1 million base salary for the rest of the year. Mike Coast at the action. Mike. Hi. So Uber's implying a move of about 10% after they report earnings. That's roughly in line with what they moved the last time. And we did see puts out number calls by about two to one. The most active weekly options were those 25 strike puts. The buyers of those were spending about 65 cents for those. That's about two and a half percent of where the stock closed at the end of the day. And that would be a bet that the stock would move 10 percent or so to the downside. Of course, after Lyft beat this afternoon and the stock went up, so did Uber. So those are a little bit further out of reach. That's about 19 percent down from where the stock is trading right now after hours. All right, Mike, thanks for that. Mike Coe with the options action. Uh, Guy Dami, obviously Lyft and Uber are very different businesses. Would you rather? I wasn't going to go well. there, but we'll go there. Sure, <laughs> let's go there. Go for it. I'll go, I'll go there. I mean, given the choice, which I just said I would go there, Lyft every day of the week over Uber. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that Lyft quarter was very strong given the environment we find ourselves in. Not that I have an account, although I was a driver. Would I rather Lyft over Uber? Absolutely. All right. All right. For more options action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, are you buying Tim's fast pitch on Abbott Labs? There is still time to vote in our, on our Twitter poll. We will reveal the results next. Welcome back to Fast Time to reveal the results of Tim's fast pitch on Abbott Labs. Uh, too bad, Tim, you did not win. That's a sad <laughs> one. But it is your birthday today. We can't play uh, sad music. No unbreak my heart. So here you have it, time of my life. <laughs> we also hear, Tim, that because of quarantine, you're with family only, you know, by yourself. So <laughs> look yeah. at that. That's crazy. <laughs> Apparently this is going around on the interweb. <laughs> All right, time for the final trade. How exciting. Birthday boy, what do you say? Yeah, you got to dance with the one that brung you, although we came up a little short tonight. Abbott Labs, expensive, but for a reason, uh, I think you got to buy it. Steve Grasso. I had a conference call. I hosted one with my good friend and your good friend, Bill McDermott, today, ServiceNow CEO. When he took over the reins, the stock was $120 cheaper. He's convinced me why I should be a buyer now, ServiceNow, N-O-W. Pete Nigerian. I'm going to go with Netflix, Bill. We had some call buying in there today. I think this stock's going to rocket before the end of the week. Guy. You know, Pete knows this. They call me assassin, Jack Tatum. Listen to what Gene Munster said about Lyft. I'm with him. By the way, I agree with Pete on Netflix. Happy birthday, Tim Lyft. Happy birthday, Tim. Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.